Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Although it looks like we have a morbid show. We're in a we, we both said at the same time we said Adam's Adam family. family. <laughs> We're of one mind today, Robbie. <laughs> Which you're enjoying the show as well. I Wednesday. am you need to catch up. I'm behind because I, I paused it to just like rewatch while I was Classic. sick in bed this week the original movies, which I like so much. Yeah, I can't hold that against you. <laughs> okay. Well, what is on our schedule today? Well, News Nation's Brian Eaton joins us later. We'll discuss new developments and authorities' investigations of the murders of four University of Idaho students. Plus, we'll get into some updates from the southern border, including a last-minute ruling halting the expiration of Title 42. But first, Elon Musk has broken his silence after some 10 million Twitter users voted to oust him from the app's leadership. Musk now says only Twitter blue users will be invited to participate in policy-related polls on the platform, meaning the chief twit appears here to stay. The policy suggestion came from one user who suggested that, as paying subscribers, Twitter blue users, quote, actually have skin in the game. Further up than that in the thread, another user suggested that the results of Musk's original poll were due to bots sent to trick the CEO into resigning, to which Musk replied, interesting. Can always blame the bots. <laughs> Meanwhile, longstanding tensions between Musk and Senator Elizabeth Warren appeared to reignite over the weekend after the senator from Massachusetts penned an open letter to the chairwoman of Tesla questioning the potential conflicts of interest created between Musk's car company and his social media platform. Tesla did not respond to other outlets' requests for comment. So it was uh, quite a couple of days for good old Elon. Yeah. So on the Elizabeth Warren conflict of interest piece, I mean, some of the conflicts that she raised was the potential that because the other car companies are advertisers on Twitter, that Elon would either try to you know, give them disfavorable terms in order to help Tesla, or that the reverse ended up, would end up being true and that he would be incentivized to make money from them on Twitter in a way that would disadvantage Tesla as a mm -hmm. company. There was a critique that potentially, you know, obviously Tesla shareholders have been even online on Twitter criticizing some of Elon Musk's tweets that his posture, that his public persona here has caused a really significant diminishment in the share price of Tesla, which is lower than it's been and a very long time, I think it was down $150, or it was at $150. You know, these losses are real, and they're manifesting in a real way. So even if you are supportive of Elon Musk, there is some question, and you're supportive mm -hmm. of Tesla, of whether or not his stewardship of Twitter is actually good for his main business. What mm -hmm. do you think? Well, I think that's a legitimate question, regardless of whether it's appropriate or whether it matters that Elizabeth Warren particularly is asking it. I think she has an axe to grind against Elon like other kind of combative people from the liberal mainstream. You don't think it's so because it's... She's, she's been a consumer advocate? I mean, I have my beef with Elizabeth Warren, but she is in a position of being a longtime yeah, consumer I, well, I'm not, advocate. I'm not, I'm not sort of totally an, in an love with consumer advocacy. And... You know, that's not really my views. But uh, I, I will say that Elon, okay, for, for <laughs> running the poll for whether he should stay in charge. So the, his, his policy via poll thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me in any framing. Because also when he, he's, he puts some free speech question to a poll, like- Oh, whether or not he should reinstate the people, the yeah. journalists he had banned. The either, look, either you, if you have a principled free speech view of what you're doing on social media, on Twitter, then you're not gonna put these questions to, to polls because the whole point should be, well, even unpopular speech, even disfavored speech, even speech that 90% of people say is vile and shouldn't belong, well, you're carving out this, this stance in favor of free speech. So we're not gonna put that to vote in the same way that the First Amendment 
stops us from putting right. speech to a vote. Right. Stops you from saying no. Those those naysayers during during a war who are you know ca- casting doubt on America's strength. We, we got to put them in jail or, or fine them for speaking out against us. First Amendment says no. You can't do that, even if everybody wants to. Or those Nazis marching down the street. How dare that's that's disgusting. You're making people very uncomfortable, very feel unsafe. You can't do that. We're all against that. First Amendment says no. You can't do that, even if you all want to. That's what the First Amendment's about. And, and again, he's not required to do the First Amendment. But w- he when he's said talking, he was going well, to, he though. says he's going to, <laughs> but then he puts the question to a, to a poll. That doesn't make sense. And then, secondly, these polls are not. These are not real. This is subject to internet whims. Everyone who runs the poll to find out, you know, this is how you get Bodie McBoatface. I tweeted that <laughs> he's going to Bodie McBoatface himself out of a job. Yeah. Because you, you, people on the internet, it's totally different incentives. It doesn't necessarily correspond to the way people would actually vote, or it, it, it doesn't channel a general election. It's it's not representative. Right. I um, saw some people saying, I'm going to vote. Yes, he should step down because I don't like Elon Musk. And people saying, I don't like Elon Musk, so I'm going to vote no, he should stay because right. his humiliation is hilarious. Or I mean, you might, might vote yes because it was the more chaotic option. Sure. It's, it's exactly. what will cause th- a few more days of entertainment exactly. out of this whole thing. Exactly. So I don't... And, and then changing it from everyone to just People with check marks check. doesn't make sense either it's because ridiculous. well then that's filtering by the I guess the higher society. Right, it's people. elitism. Wasn't yeah. the whole point of this that we this didn't want elites sense. making these kind of decisions behind closed doors? That we didn't want members of the Biden administration or the Trump administration or the FBI being able to pick up the phone and call Twitter and having their whims executed on the app? Isn't that the whole point of all of this? So for him now to say. You know, people with blue checks get special privileges. One, I'm not sure that's going to help the poll results in, in in the way that he necessarily thinks, because a lot of the blue checks are the very journalists that he has been antagonistic toward. Moreover, this seems to be yes. a disturbing continuation of the trend that we saw during that stand-up moment where he joined Dave Chappelle on stage at his comedy show, where when he got pushback from the audience, the response from Dave Chappelle was, you're mad that he's, that he's rich. He's, here's the richest man in the world. He's richer than you. All the boos are coming from the poor, poor section. And I don't know, as someone who's kind of styled himself as responsive to the people, wanting to hear from the people directly, that is a very anti-populist stance to take. Yeah. The, the suspensions of the journalists, I, I think, was very bad. I, I understand he thought it was consistent with his new doxing definition, which seems to be you can't um, give public people's locations in real time. I, I find that to be a very not uh, usable standard. I, people often point out famous people when you encounter them in On real the life. Street. I, I've done that before. I've seen Amy Klobuchar, Lisa Murkowski, like, oh, just saw you know X on the corner of wherever. I, I think people have done that to me, frankly, At a World were Cup identified. Game. <laughs> right? He, he, <laughs> he doxed himself by tweeting pictures, uh, texting pictures of himself from a, from a World Cup game. So and I understand that that's not exactly the same. And you can, no. I guess, choose to dox yourself, and that's a different thing than someone else doxing you. And but I get that he wants to keep his, his kids of course. private, absolutely. Um, but it, but then the journalists who were reporting on it. it yeah, it was journalists it who were reporting on the original incident, which is not doxing. No. Moreover, look, Again, there's some dispute over whether or not it is genuinely publicly publicly available information, his air, his flight information for his private jet, versus whether or not he uses this kind of privacy protection system where it's supposed to keep that information from yeah. the public and that the Twitter Jets account actually use a little bit of triangulation to figure out the location of the jet. Fine. But if it is the case that it's your jet that can be tracked because of some publicly information that is out there, and you, you're genuinely concerned about 
your kids being tracked because of that jet. There was also the opportunity to not put your kids on a private jet. Well, well, I, I mean, that. is that is that the world we're living in? Everybody's privacy rights have to take a oh, downgrade be because Elon Musk's kids have to be on the private jet. We have to again, not the most populist man I've ever we, I've ever can, heard of. If he really wants to reconfigure the rules of Twitter such that privacy has to be respected to a much greater degree, that would be a choice we could make. Sure. That, you know, I, I think in many ways social media has an ability to violate our, our, our privacy sure. manifestly in ways that I'm uncomfortable with. And there are trade-offs, though, between privacy and speech. And our the kind of American conception is to really default in favor of speech and not so much in favor of privacy. This is not true in other countries where there are more limits on speech in favor of privacy. You, you could do things a little bit differently, but, but it doesn't feel like that's being consistently applied. Right. It feels like a very... Ad hoc what, rationalization what harms to handle. Elon. Yeah. This has always been about what harms Elon. And we're coming, yeah, and we're coming off very critical of Elon here. So I just want to say again, like, I am very glad for what he has accomplished over the last couple of weeks in terms of disclosing, uh, disclosing what went wrong sure. with the previous regime. I, I think he's an interesting figure with a lot of interesting ideas. I think, in theory, I like the idea of him in charge of Twitter better than the people who were handling it previously. However, this it, it seems to be. He seems too online. This seems to be <laughs> taking all his attention in a very unhealthy way, and I, I don't want to like diagnose him from afar, but we all know people who are just too active on Twitter or wherever on social media, and it's not good for them. And you just have to log off sometimes for your own for your own health, for your own like sanity. That just like replying yeah. to everything and being obsessed with the platform gives you a distorted view of yourself and the world, and it's not healthy. And I see him doing that. And it would be very bad if this, in my view, brilliant innovator uh, who has so much to offer the world in terms of Tesla and putting a freaking colony on Mars goes insane from being overly obsessed with this one minor social media site. Maybe he should follow uh, YouTube's advice, or at least the guy who, or woman who administers the YouTube Twitter account, and just touch grass. Yeah. <laughs> that was good advice. That was good advice. Very good advice. All right, I will have my radar also on the Twitter files coming up next. Stay with us. Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Brianna, Michael Schellenberger released more Twitter files yesterday, and these also centered on the site's much, very infamous decision to suppress the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. The most interesting disclosure this time around was that the FBI actually paid Twitter $3.4 million to process the agency's requests. So, in fact, Twitter's official terms of service have a guidance for law enforcement section, which makes clear that Twitter may seek financial recompense if asked to complete burdensome tasks for the government. So anyone who thinks about this for more than a few seconds can easily understand some perverse incentives at play. The government pesters Twitter about suppressing content it doesn't like. Twitter puts in extra work in order to take care of those requests. And then it bills the FBI, and the FBI pays Twitter, by which I mean you pay Twitter, since all federal government money is actually confiscated from the hardworking taxpayers of this wonderful country. Hmm, that seems bad, doesn't it? The government is taking our money, using it to bribe big tech into censoring us? 
certainly feels First Amendment violating-ish to me. Elsewhere in these latest Twitter files, Schellenberger reveals that Twitter content moderators were frequently unenthusiastic about the information they were getting from the FBI. So in one such instance, an FBI agent emailed Twitter's head of moderation, Yul Roth, about alleged foreign-controlled bots impersonating progressive activists. The FBI's source was a news story by Ben Collins of NBC News, one of the most relentlessly partisan Democratic reporters in the mainstream media. But when the FBI flagged the story for Twitter's Yul Roth, Roth responded like this. He said, uh, we haven't actually seen any evidence to support that claim. Our review thus far shows a small-scale domestic troll effort that was amplified in some creative ways by real people, but not a significant bot or foreign angle. So the mainstream media insisted that some bad behavior on Twitter was due to Russian bots. Then the FBI immediately jumped into action and asked Twitter to do something about it. Twitter looked at it and said the FBI and the mainstream media were wrong. And that happened over and over again. So I've said this before, but too many people who are critical, rightly critical to be clear, of the censorship that has occurred on social media over the past few years, put the blame squarely on big tech itself. But what we're seeing in so many of these disclosures is that Big government, the deep state, the blob, whatever you want to call it, worked side by side with the mainstream media to weaken big tech's resolve to allow free speech on the platform. Now, that shouldn't absolve people like Roth of blame entirely, but we have to grapple with the incredible influence campaign waged by wholly unaccountable bureaucrats in law enforcement and national security, and we have to grapple with the mainstream media's complicity in this shell game. Russia, Russia, Russia. Since 2016, the mainstream media has continuously reinforced that that's why Trump won. Foreign social media malfeasance and disinformation. And they routinely implied that if social media companies did not do more to cleanse their platforms, they would be complicit in a second Trump term. Meanwhile, the FBI kept up pressure on social media companies. In this incredible dispatch from the Twitter files, Twitter executives circulated an internal memo lamenting that the FBI had made clear it was displeased with Twitter's, quote, lower level of compliance relative to other platforms. An executive wrote, I get the feeling that they, they being the FBI, are genuinely baffled and frustrated that their rate of success, as they say, is so low at Twitter. That memo was dated August 25th, 2020, just a few weeks before the Hunter Biden laptop story was published. Maybe Twitter felt pressured to up its compliance rate? Now, keep in mind, much of what the FBI was asking Twitter to do was nonsense. Time and time again, the agency flagged entirely harmless content. That was made clear last Friday during a previous Twitter files update. As Matt Taibbi made clear, the FBI frequently recommended that content moderators look into specific tweets and take action against them if they violated misinformation policies. But many of these tweets were from users with very low follower accounts who'd engaged in satire or humor. The FBI flagged user Claire Foster, for instance, who had tweeted, I'm a ballot counter in my state. If you're not wearing a mask, I'm not counting your vote. Hashtag safety first. She also tweeted, for every negative comment on this post, I'm adding another vote for the Democrats. Okay, these comments probably sound like satire to most people. The FBI apparently thinks election integrity is no laughing matter. So you'd be forgiven for wondering whether top law enforcement officials have anything better to do with their time than police jokes on Twitter. The extent to which big government has pressured big tech, working in tandem with the mainstream media, to crack down on dissent, contrarianism, and even humor is frankly disturbing. No truly free society should tolerate this level of surveillance by faceless, humorless G-men. 
So that was what was from the, the latest Twitter files. And look, I think it's pretty alarming. And I, I guess maybe some on the right are, are you know, talking about this being the greatest, most revealing disclosure of all time. And, and it's, it's true we knew some of this, so we should keep it in perspective. But what I'm getting from the other side is like, oh, nothing to see here. Oh, we already knew all of this. I don't get it all. This is a remarkable level of, of, um, of, of communication between the FBI and, and, a, and a social media company. It's remarkable. It's constant. It's frequent. The kinds of content they ask them to take down are often harmless, absolutely yeah. harmless content that they have no business saying anything about. And, uh, and in that one memo where, where Twitter's talking to itself, executives talking at Twitter and saying, yeah, they're, they're not happy with us. They say we don't comply as much as other platforms. You can see how that can become a kind of soft pressure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So first of all, none of this is surprising to me as a leftist because I've been observing the way that liberals have been characterizing every tweet that they don't like as Russian bots and Russian information. Yeah. Every tweet that's critical of the Democratic Party in that vein since Bernie was accused of being a Russian asset for winning Nevada, right? Like yeah. this, is, this is a tale as old as time. Moreover, I think that a really interesting piece of this, which I would like to hear focused on more by conservatives, is how much of this is pressure from the deep state, pressure from the yeah. FBI, such that just installing a new head at Twitter without dealing with those kinds of pressures isn't actually going to change things. And so that... that uh, you know, it doesn't 100%. absolve the responsibility, but, you know, Elon Musk can't be expected to miraculously overcome the FBI, just like Jack can't be expected. Like, there's been a lot of focus on individual figures at Twitter, and I'm not saying that, like you said, it's not that, you know, Yoel is a hero or anything like that, but if you really want to get to the root of where a lot of this corruption is, we have to do more than just kind of keep rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Absolutely, here. because you can see how... Even someone who is somewhat committed to having a free and open platform, as, as I frankly think a lot of these people were on paper, but when push comes to shove, the sheer volume of yeah. requests you're getting from, from these people weakens your resolve over time. And then every time someone like Ben Collins writes a story mm -hmm. in a mainstream media outlet about how there are Russian bots everywhere and this is why, you know— Biden can't have his cake and eat it, too. Every time they write that story, the FBI sends an email the second it's published to Yoel Roth or someone else saying, did you see this? What are you doing about right. this? Right. And is anybody sending emails about K-Hive whores? Right. No, right. Is, is anybody sending emails no. about the, the no. NAFO, no. you know, Nazi account trolls that, that come into your mentions anytime you say anything critical of Ukraine foreign and policy? And this was, and to be clear, this was Trump's FBI. Yeah. He did nothing yeah. to rein any of this in. This should, I, I really, the love affair with his criticism of the deep state, fine. But he didn't do anything. It was all talk. There needs to be fundamental reform yeah. of this law enforcement agency and other law enforcement agencies. Put them narrow their scope, their scope mm -hmm. to be actually focused on actual terrorism and yeah. violence, and not policing what people say online. And that is absolutely something a, a political figure, a Republican, or any political figure should do once installed. Trump. Uh, absolutely, he should not get another chance yeah. to do that. He, he screwed it up, even though he thinks they were coming from him for him, and he didn't do anything about it. Yeah, I think in my when I did a radar a couple of months ago about the defund the FBI movement, as it were, that was emerging at the time, uh, there was some statistic that said I think 85% of all FBI activity was like nonsense, like hating mm -hmm. on, you know, liberal lefty kind mm -hmm. of groups and things like that. Only 15% was dedicated to, you know, going after terrorists and Nazis mm -hmm. and things like that. So, look, 
you'll get no argument from me about yeah. how to be. And even some of that is like yours. inducing the Proud Boys to commit crimes, right? So they can the arrest them. <laughs> and all of these things that ended up happening. I did want to ask you about this one interesting point about the funding aspect of it, though. As a as a former lawyer, there's a part of me that says, yeah, when you're asked to do all of this extra work, you bill by the hour, you're compensated yeah. for it. It's not fair for Twitter to have to basically, you know, if they're actually directed in a way that they can't refuse by the government to, to do certain review protocols, why shouldn't they be compensated for it? But I also see your conflict of interest point. You know, do, can you think of a way, you know, is there a way to manage that kind of a conflict? I don't really, so I don't really begrudge Twitter for trying to collect mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, they, this is man hours and they're, they're supposed to have the kindness of their heart um, satisfy these FBI requests. So I'm just pointing out that it, it can create a perverse sure. incentive to then be fine with with doing what they're asking you to do because you're going to collect money. Sure. That, that was more my issue with yeah, well, it. And I thought it was interesting. I had no idea yeah, that this was is, going this on. This is fascinating. This is a great report. The Twitter files keep revealing some pretty interesting stuff, and I look forward to future disclosures. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you. More, more. <laughs> <laughs> more rising for you right after this. Stacey Abrams is under fire by ex-staffers and the media after her second failed run for Georgia governor against Brian Kemp. According to Axios, most of the 180 full-time staffers were given an abrupt paycheck cutoff date, which was a week after the midterm elections. One staffer told Axios, people have told me they have no idea how they're going to pay their rent in January. It was more than unfortunate. It was messed up. Campaign manager Lauren Groh Wargo confirmed to Axios that the campaign still owes more than $1 million to vendors. So this hmm. is fascinating because as we've covered, I mean, her campaign was not hurting in the fundraising capacity. No, it was raking it in. These were some of the most well-funded races in American history. Well-funded uh, losing races. Well-funded <laughs> losing races. And, of course, we covered on the show the large sums that she was also able to raise to, you know, um, institute some of these cases about election fraud in the last race and how those legal cases ended up not going anywhere at all despite raising no millions way. and millions of dollars. And potentially there was some, at best, bad optics of her paying that to a law firm that was run by her former campaign manager and a personal friend of hers. So being awash in money at the same time that you're getting these kinds of critiques from your staff is not a good look. I will say that it does seem to me, I have not, you know, I have a relatively limited experience working on campaigns. It does seem to me that to have a, a cutoff date about a week after the end of an election seems mm -hmm. kind of typical. The Bernie campaign was an outlier insofar as he paid our health insurance into, until the general election, which is obviously, what, six months or so after the end of the campaign. But that was a, a novelty that came out of, I think, the negotiations of us having the first uh, union in the history of a presidential election campaign. So it'll be interesting to hear more from this to see if this is a nothing burger or if there really is some mismanagement here financially. What do you think about still owing a million dollars to vendors? I don't know how, I, I have no idea how typical that is to still be on the hook for things like that. That seems to me to, seems to, me to be the biggest. Seems like deal. a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> to, I, owe, I, to owe hard vendors, to owe hardworking people. Yeah. I mean, businesses, I have, I have small heard businesses. stories like this before. Yeah. Bloomberg's campaign in particular, I remember a lot of stories coming out because he had promised folks, I mean, because he's one of the richest people in the world, um, 
the fact that he had promised his staffers to be paid, I believe, through the election as well, and completely reneged on that promise, left a lot of people high and dry. Um, so these kinds of things do happen. And unfortunately, it does seem to be like there's this weird correlation between people who actually have a lot of money and their inability to actually follow through. What is it they say about rich people that got rich by you know, being stingy mm -hmm. and not and not wasting money, as it were. So maybe that's part of what's going on here. But, you know, it does seem to be particularly disappointing when it's coming from someone who has presented themselves as a more progressive person, as someone who cares about the interests of poor and working people from a state where people are disproportionately lower income but doesn't have as high a minimum wage as other states and has all of the other attendant problems that you often see in kind of the southeast the southeast of the United States. Do you think States. Stacey Abrams' star is finally falling? I'm seeing a lot of uh, this is, you know, very critical reporting of her in the in the mainstream media, Axios, Politico, etc. Um, I, I guess she's still being treated in a very heroic way mm -hmm. on on MSNBC, I think. Yeah. Uh, but maybe that's starting to shift. I will say that you sometimes don't hear stories like this when there's a collective interest in protecting the candidate. And right. I know that there were these moments, I mean, there were plenty of things that a lot of folks could have complained about on the Bernie campaign that we just didn't want to rock the boat because we felt like there was so much bad press, unfair bad press right. anyway, and we believed in the mission. And I do think that you can start to intuit that when you hear more stories like this, it might be because increasing numbers of people, frankly, don't believe in the mission and don't want to protect Stacey Abrams at the expense of them not getting paid, for instance. So I do think that you could potentially read something into there. However, as long as they've stretched the potential of her being a real political player, I wouldn't be surprised if they still continue to, to try her out. And look, I think that she could do a rebrand. She could do an honest reassessment. I think that she has a lot of talents. I've said this before. When she first came onto the scene in 2018, I actually thought she did a really good job of running a campaign that spoke to all Georgians and wasn't overly focused on identities that uh, uh, issues that get coded as identity politics issues. She had a much more inclusive approach. And I, I, I would love to see her return to that. I think she has a lot of potential. But if she continues on this mm -hmm. path, I, I personally am just not seeing and it. And she's lost twice now. At some point, you just you have to deliver or you have yeah. to let someone else try. Yeah. Look, the, the thing about being in Democratic Party politics is that there tends to be a landing zone for you. And it's the same if you're a, you know, yeah. a mainstream Republican candidate. There's a million think tanks you can sit on. There's lobbying firms you can work for. You can go in-house at a law firm. This is what all of these people do, right? They try. They fail. They get put in a holding pattern to be, you know— Take, taken out and used in the future if need be. They take care of their own. Especially if you're a proven fundraiser, the way Stacey Correct. Abrams is. There's Correct. always a, a job for you. Correct. But it's, it's very difficult for other kinds of candidates. You know, people yeah. who've worked for progressive campaigns don't have the same cushy landings, not to mention the principles. And I'm sure that libertarians and other kind of outsiders, people who probably worked for Trump, had some difficulty mm -hmm. finding them, their path again um, outside of being self-financed and writing books and doing things that don't rely on being a part of a machine that buoys you. Yeah. It's, it's well, there's a, there's a Trump machine, too. There's a, sure. you know, like Carrie Lake was just... just Speaking at, uh, I, I saw <laughs> her speaking at, I, I think, the Turning Point event, yeah. you know, to, to saying that she actually won, that she, yeah. she's the governor of Arizona in her own mind, just like President Trump is right. the president in his mind. And, right. and to wild applause, to screaming, celebrating, clapping, I, you know, maybe it's not the same kind of soft landing right. that well, the, a that establishment right. can engineer for you. But yeah, you can, 
There's you can so make money that money. way. Speaking fees, book fees. You can, you know, you, she can angle for some kind of television presence yeah. on some kind of very Trump-friendly. Well, that's back to her roots. Yeah. Yeah, I, so. I remember I had a conversation um, you can lose with, and Ryan, win. with Ryan Grimm once when we were both at The Intercept together, and it was, I think, after the 2018 elections. And we were kind of miffed about how when the progressive candidates fail, I mean, there's just nothing there mm -hmm. for you. There's not piles of money and, you know, ideologically, we're opposed to those kinds of resources and being funded in those ways. So unless you can get like a Verso book deal, you know, mm -hmm. which is not going to give you the kind of payout as, as these like mainstream publishers, you're just kind of stuck. And the people who are running these progressive races are often you know, like single, single mothers and, you know, un, former union guys and, and things like that who, who can't fall back on their law firm salaries or whose parents weren't senators the way that you get in mainstream politics. So there's a lot of dysfunction in the system. So I'm, I'm, I'm caught between like being happy that there's some institutional resources for some people who run, but disgruntled that it's not um, an even slate and that some of the best candidates don't get the second, third, and fourth crack at the apple that mainstream Democrats and mainstream Republicans get. Absolutely. All right, we will have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Authorities in Moscow, Idaho, are seeking the public's help in identifying the occupants of a white Hyundai Elantra made between 2011 and 2013 and seen near the off-campus home where four University of Idaho students were murdered last month. Police say they could have critical information about the case. New surveillance footage obtained by News Nation shows two of the victims walking in downtown Moscow with an unidentified man just hours before they were murdered. An attorney for the family of Kaylee Goncalves raised doubts uh, last week over how Moscow police have conducted the investigation thus far. Let's watch. Once again, we haven't get money, gotten any information from the police. Um, the communication has been very poor. It really continues to be poor. Um, you know, I've sent over a couple questions over the last few days that still haven't gotten answered. The whole thing is trust us, trust us, trust us and have faith in the investigation and we're making these right decisions. Well, if you're missing out on video uh, because you go in on the 22nd. Right. Um, Joining us now with details into the investigation is News Asian senior national correspondent, Brian Enton. Brian, great to have you with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Yeah, so tell us what the latest is, uh, you know, what is the new information with this, uh, with the surveillance footage of the car, uh, et cetera? Yeah, so unfortunately, you know, the basics sort of, sort of remain the same. Still, um, still no known suspect or persons of interest. Police are still staying very, very tight-lipped. They still continue to look for this Hyundai Elantra. Uh, at last check, there were 22,000 uh, Hyundai Elantras in, in that time frame. Uh, registered in both Idaho and Washington, and they're trying to go through every single one of those registrations. So it's obviously taking a really, really long time, even with the help of the FBI. So they're still asking the public for help. Uh, there was some surveillance video that came about from uh, from a gas station that shows um, a white car. We're not sure if that's the exact car that they're looking for. There's also a, um, a landlord near the house where the murders happened, who I talked to, who says he picked up a light-colored car uh, around the time of the murders, right on a road near where the murders happened, that he also uh, submitted that video surveillance to the uh, authorities. He said that the FBI was trying to enhance his video. So uh, behind the scenes, a lot happening, but they say they still haven't identified the actual car uh, that they're looking for. 
Yeah, and this speaks to, you know, a question that I and I think so many people have had about this whole story, which, you know, there's surveillance... We're surveilled without our knowledge all the time. Everybody has security cameras. There's so much video footage everywhere. So the idea that you know this could happen and we'd have just no nothing whatsoever, no no you know grainy or, or sketchy uh, video footage of anyone near the the house at that time always seemed baffling. So now it sounds like maybe they do have that kind of stuff, but they just they haven't been able to turn that into an actionable. Um, lead, even if they have had that information for for some time, or or is or is it this is this is newly come to them because they're not also not being very transparent about when they got this this surveillance footage. Yeah, so the surveillance footage you're looking at right there, um, we uh, obtained that over the weekend. That's video of uh, Maddie and Kaylee walking in downtown Moscow just hours before the murders. Um, and they're talking about a man named Adam, who we've come to find out is actually a bartender um, at one of the bars in town and uh, has apparently been cleared and is not a suspect right now, according to, to the lawyer for the Gonsalves mm-hmm. family. Um, so that video, we know that police had uh, two, day, two or three days after the murders. We were just able to track it down over the over the um, the weekend. So you make a good point. I mean, there's a lot of video that police have had that that just hasn't been made public. Uh, like I was mentioning, the one landlord uh, who gave up video that was also just a couple of days after the murder. So police have had it since then. So there's clearly a lot that they have that they haven't been sharing. Um, but what's interesting is when they talk about the Hyundai Elantra, they've released a stock photo. So it's it's just a generic photo of a Hyundai Elantra. They haven't actually released um, a, a photo of the actual car that they're looking for, which leads us to believe that that they don't have the car on video, or at least they don't have a clear image uh, of the car. Yeah, my understanding was that, you know, there, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of concern about this revelation that they did, in fact, have some of this information, the um, video footage of the, the light-colored car, and now this kind of stunning video from just hours before the murders took place in which there was an identif- unidentified man walking with these, these two young women, not that he's necessarily a suspect, but it is in really stark contrast to the messaging that we've heard in the weeks since the murders, which is that there was just absolutely nothing here. And part of what was defining the coverage of the story was how mysterious the circumstances of all of this were. The gap between that and what we're now seeing doesn't give a lot of confidence in the way that law enforcement is handling this case. And I saw specifically criticisms that if you're going to rely on the public's help to track down this vehicle, time is of the essence, and questions about why it was that the public wasn't made aware of the fact that they should be tracking down this Hyundai Elantra much sooner. Are those concerns that you've heard echoed from the family, the families of the victims? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Especially uh, the Gonsalves family, their attorney, um, even last night, again, uh, was talking to me about how he is concerned um, with, with the police investigation right now. One of his big concerns is, is like the first 48 hours um, after the murders happened, because obviously now there's 60 FBI agents working the case. Um, there's more than a dozen uh, state detectives also helping Moscow PD, which is pretty small. But his concern is, you know, right after it happened, those first 48 hours before all of those additional resources were able to come in, why didn't they they do more? Why didn't they put out some kind of alert to the community? Hey, you know, do you know of anyone in in this small town who missed work, who, you know, has injuries?
injuries on their arms because obviously they, there were, you know, we know that some of the victims fought back during the attack. He, he just feels like enough wasn't necessarily done early on. Um, and that perhaps this, you know, relatively small police department that hasn't had to dealt with a murder in seven years. So in some ways you can't really blame them. I mean, it's this beautiful, quiet, small town that doesn't really have much crime, but, but he's questioning, you know, should they have handed things over much earlier uh, to, you know, to a federal agency that has more experience in this kind of thing. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, my understanding, I, I believe since last we, we spoke with you, is there was a bit of new information on the, you know, without getting into the very gruesome details, the, the conditions they were found in. The, the two of the girls uh, were actually found even in the same bed. Um, it, it very, you know, they were very violent, very deep stab wounds, not, you know, would, would not have been recoverable, might have been swifter kind of death situation. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So the reason that we're obviously interested in that, and you mentioned it, it's gruesome, it's, you know, you, you don't like to talk about it, especially of what these families are going through. Um, but it's because there's this whole question of who was the target? Was there a target? Is it possible, you know, the victim with um, with the most substantial wounds was the target of the killer? Um, and we've learned through um, the Gonzalez family that they say their uh, daughter, Kaylee, had significantly, you know, more serious stab wounds than her best friend, Maddie, who she was sleeping in the same bed as, you know, does that mean that Kaylee was um, was the target uh, or does it perhaps mean that she also woke up and was fighting back? And that's why she was, uh, you know, had worse injuries. We really just don't know. We also don't really know how how her injuries compare to the other two victims who were on the second floor. Um, and again, that's another thing that the families are frustrated by is some of the communication, you know, they've streamlined it now. The police are the ones doing most of the talking and releasing of information. But early on, you know, you had the prosecutor talking, you had the coroner uh, who the family say was calling them directly and, and giving them information. Um, and again, you know, it's a small town. The coroner is a, is a local attorney in town. They question, you know, does she even have the expertise? She, should she have been calling families and giving out information? Um, you know, a quadruple homicide like this for, you know, college students stabbed. Again, a lot of people here are just questioning, like, are they really equipped to um, to handle an investigation like this, something that would be serious in any big city or anywhere in the country, let alone, you know, a, a very, very small, quiet town? Brian, I also want to just ask you about um, this uh, vape store owner who says that Kaylee had a stalker and that the girls walked in a group because they were afraid of her being targeted. What do we know about that that claim? Yeah, so I interviewed that vape, vape store owner. Um, according to him, Kaylee and Maddie um, would come into the vape store, uh, you know, pretty regularly. He said he had encountered them six or seven times. So it, the store is not far from their home. Um, and he says the last time that he spoke to the girls, it was about... Um, three weeks before the murders and he says they came in as as a big group and that they were discussing how they were in a group because kaylee had a stalker and they were all sticking together to keep her safe um he didn't have a lot of specifics about you know who the stalker might be um you know but it was certainly interesting considering this this stalker um you know theory has come up over and over again we know that he you know he's spoken to police police actually came into his store uh looking for surveillance video at one point so just you know just another element um to the mystery but the bottom line is we still don't really know whether kaylee had a stalker and her family 
um, you know, says that she never brought up a specific person to them, especially her sister, who she was super close to. They mm. talked about everything. Her sister says if she, if she really had a, a stalker, she likely would have, you know, it would have come up on, you know, they talk like multiple times per day. Mm. Mm. Incredible. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your updated reporting on that great work. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Title 42 was due to end on Wednesday, but Supreme Court Justice John Roberts temporarily stopped its expiration. The Trump-era immigration order was implemented in 2020 at the height of the pandemic to halt the coronavirus from spreading across the southern border via an influx of migrants. The Supreme Court has ruled that it should stay in place until GOP-led legal challenges can play out. The Biden administration has failed to lift Title 42 since Biden came into office. Now it is saying it is barred from doing anything because of the order. Here's what White House Secretary, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said on Monday in defense of the administration's position. Let's watch. We remained under a court order to lift Title 42. That is Aren't a court order. That, that is a court order that is telling us to lift Title 42, and we're going to comply because we follow the rule of law. But the administration that is, sought to lift that it. Is, but it is a court order. But that is that started by you guys. It was a court order that has been provided to us, and so now we have to comply, and that is we have to comply by December 21st. It is it is a law so that is you been don't support court lifting what Title I'm 42? Saying is that I, what I'm saying that it is a court order that has been presented to us that we are going to comply with. Until justices make a decision, officials can continue to remove migrants quickly from the U.S. border. So the, I thought the pandemic was over. Yeah, that, that is the point. So to be, to be really clear here, the Supreme Court, which has said that the pandemic is over and that's the justification. Well, the Biden not, administration said it was over. Sure. Everybody yes. said, I mean, like, yeah. this is a But Joe, Joe Biden himself now. said it was over. He was interviewed. Absolutely. He said over. As he was walking but, down, checking out but, cars. But for the purposes of the inconsistency here, yes. the, if the Supreme Court uses a justification that the, the, the pandemic no longer justifies an eviction moratorium or um, mask mandates or some of these other things that have gone on. And by the way, is likely to say that student debt relief doesn't pass muster because it's also hinged on the idea of there being a COVID emergency. Then it's, it's inconsistent to say that this immigration policy, which is also contingent on there being a pandemic emergency, should stay in place. And it is very odd to see Karine Jean-Pierre take this posture where she seems to not want to own the administration's support of ending Title 42, presumably because there is a belief that it will have the impact of allowing more immigrants to come over the border when our um, asylum system is backed up, people aren't able to get temporary work permits, and there are limited resources to help make this not a humanitarian crisis in cities where people end up settling. Those are all real concerns. The question is, are you avoiding the fundamental problem of needing to make some significant reforms to the immigration process and instead trying to shoehorn uh, Title 42 in in a way that is completely inconsistent with your other COVID era policies? Title 42 just makes absolutely no sense even in this scenario because my understanding is it's designed to, in an emergency, to prevent immigration because maybe the immigrants coming in have a disease we're trying to keep out of the country. Yeah. But that is utterly inapplicable here because COVID is already in the U.S., <laughs> probably at higher rates than, or at equal rates. It's not stopping immigrants from coming ha is having no effect whatsoever on the spread of COVID. None. So to use that justification is, is just, it's absolutely 
It's, it's wrong. So even if you support, look, if you support having less immigration, if you want more immigration restriction, you should own that in a responsible way and think the policies should be different to keep immigrants out. You should not try to come up with some made up justification hinged to Title 42, which, may, which doesn't apply here at all. It, it doesn't fit that rationale. Yeah, especially if you were politically antagonistic to the idea of COVID, COVID justifications programs. for things, you know, if, yeah. Hypothetically, if you were a liberal who has always wanted all of these COVID era policies and also is saying, okay, let's, you know, it, yeah. I wouldn't love it, but like right. it, it would, at least it's internally inconsistent. But what is really frustrating. Although I guess me, that's akin-ish to what the Biden administration has done. I mean, they, they didn't love the the yeah. COVID powers being taken away from them. They're kind of like begrudgingly. Well, what else can well, we do? They're well, being sure. taken away and, from and us. It's still this weird mixed messaging because Karine Jean Pierre. I mean, that, that that back and forth we saw that was about a reporter saying, "Wait, do you do you want?" To get rid of Title 42, or do you not want to get rid of Title 42? And Karine Jean-Pierre saying, well, we have a court order. We have to get rid of Title right. 42. So the Biden administration you know, has been under a lot of pressure from activists to get rid of it. I think that it doesn't want the political heat of, of being, you know, the Biden administration lets immigrants pour over the border because it gets rid of Title 42. So it's trying to hide behind the fact that it was its hand was forced so that it can appease activists at the same time as, as, as avoiding some of the responsibility for the outcome. This is all not doing anybody a, a real service. It's not helping immigrants who need you to be substantively owning the crisis and saying that you can have a genuine humanitarian interest in the people who are coming here, a genuine commitment to addressing the reasons why they've come here, which have a lot to do with foreign policy and American sanctions, and at the same time, be cognizant of the fact that people who are living in America are really fussed about the idea that all of this money is potentially being spent on immigrants when their own life is so horrific. Well, and we've seen, you know, the pictures from the border and it, it does not look we see right. the it, numbers of people sleeping crisis. sleeping the the conditions we have for them are not good enough so they're sleeping outdoors it gets yes. very cold at night. Yes. We see people, you know, streaming across the river. We know many of them have come through unsafe conditions. So you can be totally just concerned about the reality of yes. the situation. It needs it needs a legislative answer. Yes. It needs Congress to do something in partnership or in partnership or understanding with the executive branch and law enforcement needs to come together and figure this out. Trying to trying to do this randomly based on policies that don't apply whatsoever. Yes. Makes no sense. It's, it's embarrassing for America to embarrassing. say, give me your tired, you're hungry, you're poor, and we're going to let them sleep under a bridge yeah. in, in El Paso. It's ridiculous. Well, speaking of, a record number of migrants have crossed the U.S.-Mexico border since President Biden took office, and the crossing has increased in recent days, forcing the city of El Paso in Texas to declare a state of emergency. Here is Mayor Oscar Lesser addressing the crisis on Monday. Let's watch. We know that... Uh, Title 42 looks like it's uh, going to be called back on um, Wednesday. We felt there was proper time today to call a state of emergency. And the reason why we're doing it is because I said from the beginning that I would call it when I felt that either our uh, asylum seekers or our community was not safe. And I really believe that today our asylum seekers are not safe as we have hundreds and hundreds on the streets. And that's not the way we want to treat people. 
Worries about the influx of migrants aren't only plaguing southern states. New York City's Mayor Eric Adams said the expiration of the Trump-era order means more migrants, which means a bigger strain on public services for New Yorkers. In a statement Sunday, he said that he refuses to be forced to pick addressing the needs of new arrivals over current New Yorkers. And it shouldn't be a zero-sum game, right? I mean, we talk about this all the time in the context of Ukraine funding. We know that money materializes for the causes that seem to be important to the deep state, to the American government, to the capitalists, to the, you know, to the corporatists in charge. And suddenly it's working class people fighting over pennies when it comes to something like these immigration reforms. And I understand people have different feelings about America's spending. People have, in my view, and in most economists view antiquated understanding of understandings of how the U.S. economy works. It's not like a personal household budget. Um, we do have the fiat currency. We are able to print money, and we do it all the time for projects that I would argue don't have the same humanitarian draw as something like this. But a decision has to be made as a nation. Do you want to forego what I thought was once a proudly held American principle of being a beacon for asylum of asylum for the rest of the world? To say that we have this amazing democracy, that we have these speech rights and freedoms, and we can mm-hmm. we protect people from marginalized groups and who are being attacked and persecuted for political reasons in their country, and therefore we have an asylum process through which people can make their claims and either be accepted or denied before they're sent back home or allowed to stay? Or do we want to say all of those principles go out the window, we can't fund a better asylum process, we're just going to ship people back home because our... We, we're not actually the richest country in the history well, of the world, and we don't have this value anymore. Well, and, and speaking of things most economists believe, most economists believe, and most conservatives or Republicans used to believe this as well, that generally speaking, permissive immigration policies are good for the economy mm-hmm. because immigrants, they, they contribute here, they work, um, they make the price of goods go down, they provide services, it's, it's good for the economy. Artificially restricting labor, just like artificially... Uh, artificially restricting lumber or bricks or steel or anything else, that would hurt the economy. It, it hurts the economy with labor, too. Now, that doesn't, I understand that doesn't address people's concerns with, like, people streaming across and then, you know, overwhelming um, emergency services and actual border areas. They don't have work permits. We don't, They're not allowed to work. Right. You know, the, they need, obviously, well, that, and that, which is the most ridiculous thing yeah. of all. Yeah. But if we had saner laws, we could have we could have a better grasp of this reality. We could understand. We, we could have more awareness of and, and preparation for who's coming in. If we just we could make it easier and then controllable, because mm-hmm. this is what you do, and we don't have everybody just sh- show up and then claim asylum, and then we lose track of you, and then it'll be forever until we process your claim. When you're not when you're not really asylum doesn't actually fit your circumstance. We don't have to do that. We just need to change the actual laws. Yes, yes, and that starts with I think really funding. You got to fund. You got to fund the asylum system. You got to fund, fund the border. Sorry. What do we got to fund? The very system well, that is is implemented to actually let's get work let's claims. get work permits for people to come yeah. here and then go back and forth if they need. Well, you need you and need that's... to hire you need to hire the administrator staffers to be able to process and administer those those permits. Why like that's we, part of the issue. Why don't issue. we shuffle some people into this from elsewhere in the government? You just want to you just want to rubber stamp everybody who comes about. Breaking news: <laughs> Robbie Swafe wants to rubber stamp. Work permits for everybody who comes across the border without any administrative process yeah, whatsoever. I'd rather do that than hire more G-men. All right, look, I'm I'm amenable to it. We'll, we'll keep talking about this and have more pricing for you right after this. 
Chris Licht, who became CNN's CEO earlier this year, spoke about the reactions he's received since his appointment. He told the New York Times, quote, the uninformed vitriol, especially from the left, has been stunning, which proves my point. So much of what passes for news is name-calling, half-truths, and desperation. Lick's former boss, comedian Stephen Colbert, told Lick before he departed the Colbert show for CNN not to go. And now Colbert is giving a four-worded four-worded reminder to Lick saying, I told you so. So when he says the left is after him, he I assume liberals. he doesn't mean Rihanna Joy Gray. No, the, <laughs> the, the opening of the article very quickly, you know, the, the headline is left, the body is liberals, 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 right. and it is people like Keith, Keith Olbermann, Olbermann hollering, saying that you're... Who called him a fascist. I can't believe he would do that. <laughs> after, and here's why. Because he moved Don Lemon from the night show to the morning show. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. real fascism in the foot. <laughs> it's that, and the next thing, you're rounding people up and putting them in concentration camps. <laughs> The worst. So look, that's I, what Hitler did first. He moved Don Lemon's first hours. First, you come for Don Lemon, <laughs> and I said nothing. Oh. Look, in all seriousness, look, Chris Licht is really getting is under fire because he has made it clear that he doesn't want CNN to be an advocacy organization. He says the right has Fox, the left has MSNBC. You know, we need to be so, something mm-hmm. different. There needs to be something that everybody can enjoy, perhaps. I don't know, and we talk about this a lot, I don't know that trying to completely stay out of it. I think you're right not to want to be an advocacy organization for one party or the other. But I think you still need to have a perspective, a point of view. And that's the negotiation that's so difficult for folks. And we'll see if CNN manages to, to land that plane. They are not managing it so far. <laughs> I was watching a little bit last night. Yeah. It was wild. In what um, way? I was watching Jake Tapper, and he had on uh, Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I understand that they're fantastic journalists who did the nation of public service, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But man, their their perspective on Trump and January 6th stuff was libish. extremely libish, mm-hmm. Ex- you know, far in the treason was committed mm-hmm. kind of category of mm-hmm. commentary that I thought is exactly what Licht is trying to stay away from. Um, I, I saw a panel after that with some CNN people. Um, including uh, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, who has been on Rising before, guest hosted it, who I think is a good commentator, and and her remarks are normal or mm-hmm. fine and everyone else still though is uh, it's just it's just so one directional it, it, it's a faux moderate where it's moderate but just so so condemning of Trump so the the heroism of the January 6th committee and there's and you're right it's fine to have that perspective there's no other perspective if they want balance then they need to bring in someone who feels the other perspective sure. would they ever have a Carrie Lake type person Never. on this network would they ever have someone who can explain where Carrie Lake types people's supporters right. are coming from no uh, they used to maybe they don't do that anymore right and it doesn't need to be a Kerry Lake fan or a Trump fan to explain the appeal mm-hmm. of these people. Ostensibly, you should be able to have commentators that understand what's going on in the world and what the appeal of people across the political spectrum is without personally feeling one way or the other. This shouldn't be about what you and your heart feel to be an interlocutor right. in this kind of a space. I think, you know, one of the most um, uh, 
prescient articles that came out back in 2016, one of the few that anticipated that Donald Trump could actually win, was by a leftist at Current Affairs magazine, Nathan Robinson, who wrote this piece that perfectly explained what Trump's appeal was, why he was going to compare favorably to Hillary Clinton, why all of the things that should make him vulnerable, in fact, weren't vulnerabilities because Hillary was vulnerable in those same ways. The tax of corruption and being tied to Wall Street were all awash because they were both Similarly accused. So that kind of analysis can often come from unexpected places. But what we know is that the people who get access typically to these kinds of venues are, are there because they're the same kind of person. So they have the same kind of personal feelings. And what you get is a, a very um, predictable, same-looking display of character after character after character who's identical, even if they have a D versus an R after their names, because they're all from the same cohort, from the same class and political cohort, and there's not an original thought between them. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's just, it's so striking to me, so many years into this populist revolution, that none of these networks have thought about diversifying their panels at all. No, they diversify them by hiring more Never Trump Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, in, in, in fact, and they said, I heard this line last night. I was going to bring this up. The whole you know, Liz Cheney is impeachable. She's a conservative. She's a very conservative Republican. Like, you, you don't understand. You don't understand. It, it's not about what her views are now. It's about what whether you're a conservative has to do with what your feelings are toward Trump. That is the orienting, animating principle of the Republican Party. you got to keep up with the times. It's No, it's not about how pro-life you are. It's about what are you willing to say about Trump. If you're, if you're against Trump and spending all of your political capital to hurt him, then you are a liberal. If you're, if you're not thrilled with what he's doing and you're not going to go out of your way to defend him anymore, but you're not you know, spending your entire career trying to destroy him, then you're a moderate. Yeah. You're going... If you really try not to condemn him, but you're not going to say things positive about him, you're a moderate conservative. And if you're going to the bat for him, all you care about is pro-Trump stuff, then you're very conservative. You're yeah. right wing. That's the spectrum. Right. Does has nothing to do with policy. Do I want it to be that way? No. But that's reality. Right. We have to live in reality. Right. Also, the, also, the, also the, the kind of critique, I think. Are you going to critique Trump on the basis that how dare he? He he blasted all the decorum. You know, mm -hmm. he, he did all these things that presidents aren't supposed to do. He had a potty mouth and used this language and did an interaction. And, and look, I'm not saying those are inappropriate critiques. Mm -hmm. You can have problems with all of those things. But that's all we tend to hear from liberals. There, you know, there have been these blockbuster reports about specific instances of he financial insulted fraud. The he, insulted he insulted the generals. He insulted the generals. How dare you know, he? Like, the, yeah. Journalists have done some good work and said, this is the way, these are the ways that he actually cheated on his taxes. These are the things that he might have actually violated, how, how he actually might have violated the law. These are the offenses that might have actually been impeachable, but it's so much more vibes than substance that you end up blocking all of it out. It's really been the boy who cried wolf mm -hmm. with respect to Donald Trump and the coverage. And now they wonder why people are exhausted by it. Yeah. Now, I don't, going back to this Chris Licht New York Times article, I don't quite know what to make of it. I read it. It's a, I think you agree that it's a very strange article. Yeah. It, it kind of tries to assert that what he's doing is not working or things are very bad for CNN under his stewardship. It hasn't been very long, though, for him to long. be in charge. And also, whenever the New York Times says, like, a pivot away from libishness, as you called it, <laughs> is failing, well, of course they're going to say that. They want it to fail. They, they want libishness to be the ruling uh, regime forever. And sure. it's successful under their model, so I... I mean, look, it, it doesn't look like it's being especially... It, it's especially successful so far. But it wasn't especially I, successful before. Sure. I mean, I will say... I will say that there have been moments, and the article points this out, where 
you know, the day of a new morning show, there are articles written that say, oh, it was a failure because the ratings were bad. And Chris Licht makes the point that, I mean, it was the first day of, the, of a new show. It's not fair to judge the whole success of the yeah. enterprise based on those kinds of numbers. And I appreciate that it does look like people are waiting for this new approach to fail, perhaps because for ideological reasons, they see Chris Licht as a as a fascist for wanting to have a more moderate approach. But also I think it's because his version of a moderate approach, at least as we've seen it so far, seems to be doubling down on the kind of milk toast moderation that has caused all of these channels to fail in the Trump years. Hmm. I, I think that's true. I think if there's a Republican president again, the, they'll probably rebound just fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's enjoyable to be oppositional to the go- the government, I think, for cable news channels, or it's an easier position to be in. Um, maybe that's less true now, but I, I feel like that's probably the case. Look, they could run. Here, here's some free advice. You can do some segments on the FBI being bad. Yeah. The deep state being a problem. Yeah. Uh, the military-industrial complex being so invested in this war in Ukraine that we've run out of missile stockpiles for our own self-defense. Uh, you can talk about, you could, you could try something novel. I'm about to say something that blows your mind, Robbie. You could try some critiques of the Democratic Party. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. You might want to try talking about, I don't know, Biden crushing the Railway Labor Act. We might want to talk about the fact that there has um, this, the, 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 what do you call it, the mansion side deal to the environmental provisions of the uh, Build Back Better bill that were sidelined and everybody thought, oh, hurrah, well, the environmentalists won this one. They're back on the table and getting shoved into this omnibus bill. You know, we can talk about you know, right and left can come together and enjoy a good critique of the party in charge. That's your job as journalists, to challenge power. We're doing not it every challenge day. the Republican We're party. We're doing it every day, buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I'm saying is take some notes from Rising. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but don't, no, don't steal our shit. No, no, don't do that. Keep doing what you're doing and keep failing at it. We'll keep doing what we're doing. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. The January 6th committee has referred former President Donald Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Adam Schiff, said there is sufficient evidence that Trump committed multiple crimes and that it is past time for him to face justice. Trump was referred on four separate charges, including inciting, assisting, or aiding and comforting an insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and conspiracy to make a false statement, The Hill reports. Representative Liz Cheney reflected on Trump's alleged behavior on January 6th. President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. So here's what's so frustrating about that. Yeah. I agree with what she just said. Mm -hmm. He should have issued a statement. He should have done things differently. He shouldn't have said untrue things about the election for weeks and then and then stoked a mob of his supporters to take the action they did. Mm -hmm. He should never be president again because of it. I agree with all that. Mm -hmm. But it's not a crime. 
can't prosecute him for that. You just shouldn't vote for him again. Or, or you should have, they, the, and by you, I mean the Senate, could have impeached him. They held that vote. He was acquitted. Case closed. It's over. Move on. You have to defeat him in the ballot box if you want to defeat him. That's the only way. And and this, I'm sorry, this just endless parade of possible criminal charges. And in, in fact, that makes his that will make his supporters rally around him harder because it will be it, it has the appearance of like illegitimacy of of the uh, the deep state or the 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 system itself trying to prevent you from being able to vote on whether you want Donald Trump as your president again. From a rhetorical standpoint, I agree with her that he's unfit to be president, but you have to let Americans make that choice. It, it's not criminal in the actual criminal sense. He said bad things. He did bad things. Hold him accountable for it in the in the ballot box, but that's where it has to be. Yeah, my critique is similar, but it's more along the lines of, to the extent that there are, there might be real crimes that he can legitimately be charged with and convicted of, to the extent that they might actually discover those and successfully litigate those. The fact of it being couched so obviously as a device to prevent him from running for president again makes even folks who in good faith would be concerned about him violating the law unwilling to perhaps engage really substantively with the things that he may have done because it seems so politically motivated. Mm -hmm. Because it is pretty expressly politically motivated. When you're sitting there saying he should never be president again on the heels of, you know, you're, you're devoting more airspace, frankly, to talking about how this man should never be president than the substance of the underlying crimes, how can you really, you know, be confused about why the public doesn't seem to be buying into this? Especially, to your point, since we've been through this now a couple of times already. And, he, and I, I'm not ruling out the possibility that he that he committed an actual crime. I'm sure he committed actual crimes, just as I'm sure Biden has committed actual crimes, and Obama, and George W. Bush, and probably every president who's ever served, minus like William Henry Harrison, who died 28 <laughs> days into office. But these are procedural, this is this is BS. This is this is comforting an insurrection. You had to look that up before, you like, didn't believe it. Teleprompter, is that, <laughs> is that a real thing? Comforting an insurrection? Well, then it gets, it was it, then we have to debate whether, whether it was an insurrection, yeah. It was a spontaneous mob action it, it, to which he bears moral responsibility. I'm not, like, dancing around that. It's just not a crime. Everything bad that happens is not a crime. It's well, not call the police, lock him up. Again, I, I, don't, I don't know. I have not been investigating Donald Trump, and I have not—I confess that this is not the beat that I've been paying the most attention to. So I'm open to the idea that there are real crimes. Certainly Donald Trump has— broken the law <laughs> in the past in his kind of personal financial dealings and things like that. So any, anything is possible. But if it were me, if I were the one pressing this issue in Congress, if I were Liz Cheney, <laughs> I would take a different posture. I would say, look, I know there's a lot of other things that we are concerned about. There's a lot of other things that are more important to the American people. There's a lot of other better ways for us to be using our time as Congress members. And it's disgusting that we have to go through this again. But it is my obligation um, to make sure that justice is served and that people aren't way to get, able to get away with crime. So let's dispatch of this. You know, like, you know, mm -hmm. make, make it clear that prosecuting Trump is not my entire personality and try to distance myself from charges that this is a vendetta. But someone like Liz Cheney has literally recast her entire political identity around this Trump stuff. And I understand why. Obviously, she lost her status entirely, her position in the Republican Party as a right. consequence of being willing to say that Trump should be impeached. And I understand that. But I think over and over again, a lot of these establishment politicians don't understand 
the basis for the skepticism that they're hit with. It's not entirely about, you know, Donald Trump's whole entire persona was the news is after me, the fake news is after me, I'm being persecuted, they're treating me unfairly. And even when things are true, the underlying claims are true, when you have people who kind of openly frame it as a political vendetta, they're not going to be taken seriously. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's true. And they're not taken seriously. People like her have no place in the Republican Party anymore if they've gone to her extent. There are plenty of people still in good standing in the Republican Party getting more and more vocal who yeah. want to part ways with Trump. They're just doing it more tactfully than she is. Sure. Well, Trump responded to the January 6th referrals on his Truth Social platform, saying, these folks don't get it that when they come after me, people who love me, who love freedom, rally around me. It strengthens me. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Mm. Um, that's a statement without any kind of Trumpian flourish to it. That's I don't like it. That's more Kelly Clarkson. I, don't, I didn't like it at all. He also <laughs> wrote on the platform, the maybe here we go, the fake charges made by the highly partisan unselect committee of January 6th have already been submitted, prosecuted, and tried in the form of impeachment hoax number two i won convincingly double jeopardy anyone there we go that's what i'm looking for in a trump statement well i mean, just, I mean jeopardy it's, a, anyone. it's a trump statement it's trumpy but it also is basically what we just finished yeah. saying that we've been through this before. he was acquitted he was the equivalent of acquitted yeah that that was the appropriate the the mechanism for holding him accountable for what happened on January 6th was impeachment and then a vote in the senate to remove him from office he was not removed from the off from office so I don't know what else you want from yeah. the political system. Sorry, the political system didn't give you the results you wanted. Got to move on. Yeah. Got to just work toward not having him be the Republican nominee and then not having him be the president if, if that's how you feel. Yeah, frankly, Trump has lost a lot of his mojo. He's not on Twitter. I mean, technically he's allowed back on, but whatever deal he has with Truth Social has him not actually tweeting. He doesn't command the same attention that he used to. I did a radar a few weeks ago about how the media – covered his uh, presidential announcement as uh, nothing to see here, folks, low energy, a low energy event. But if you want to give him some pep in his step again, make him uh, a victim, make him a target, make him feel like he's an outsider that's being attacked unfairly by the establishment. I've seen even very pro-Trump people kind of rolling their eyes at the, the Trump coin was a breaking point. Did you <laughs> see that last week? Yeah. He was like, stay tuned for some big special <laughs> announcement. And, they, you know, they're all excited. And then it was it was a... The equivalent of like an action figure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw some people speculating, and obviously it was not the case, that he was going to be announcing that he would run independent, uh, not third party. Uh, sorry, as a third party, not as a Republican. Mm -hmm. Basically doing the Kirsten Cinema thing, where you either back down and don't run against him, or you threaten to ruin the whole thing for the right and throw it to the other side. Um, which I think would have been a much wiser and more interesting move than uh, Trump coin. It will be... That would be very interesting, obviously, if he does that. The reason why that's not going to be such a like, rock-solid strategy necessarily for him is that I believe if he does that, if he exits the Republican Party and runs, conservative media will universally turn on him. There will be, there will be no fence-sitting. Like they did in 2016? I think they'll all do it this time, even I, I, down the line. I could be wrong. That would be was, my prediction. Was that not close to being... The scenario in 2016 before he won them over. Initially, remember he was Jen still doing it within point? the party. Yeah, I think they will all say he is. He is guaranteeing by doing this. He's guaranteeing that Joe Biden is going to be reelected and socialism will roll in America. He, like <laughs> that's what they'll say. Could be wrong. That'd be my prediction. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he could still he could still pull it off maybe, but he would have to do it with universal 100. percent Like he, he would lose Sean Hannity. He would lose. 
he would lose the most loyal people he has in conservative media. Would be my prediction. Could be wrong. We'll have to see if that happens. More Rising right after this. Twitter files show that the intelligence community was actively involved in discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop story. Does it bother the president and those at the White House that a government agency like the FBI was involved in suppressing a legitimate news story? Again, I'm just going to refer you to the FBI. I'm not going to comment from here about that. All right. That's Karine Jean-Pierre fielding some questions about the Twitter files. Does this seem in line, you know, consistent with the, the approach that a lot of liberals have taken, which is that there's nothing to see here, folks. Don't ask me these kinds of questions. And she said that over and over again, did she not? Yeah. No, no comment from us. Take it up with the FBI. Like, the FBI is going <laughs> to offer comment on this. <laughs> right. Uh, the FBI works for Joe Biden. Yeah. This is the whole problem with this thing, is the, the bureaucracy— has grown beyond the ability of the American people to hold it accountable vis-a-vis the democratic process because the people ostensibly in charge of the bureaucracy who, who picked the bureaucrats, the, the people we vote on, the, the Congress and the president, they have no actual control over it. They don't even know what's going on at it. Everybody. Clearly, Donald Trump had no idea what was going on. He was railing against it but failed to do anything about it. And uh, I don't think uh, Joe Biden necessarily does either. Or they know. Or they know they and they don't care. Approve, or, or they tacitly approve. I mean, I think in this instance, it's particularly problematic because they're asking her about a story and the FBI's interference on a story that has direct implications for Joe Biden's Personal candidacy and his family, right? So to the extent that I think you, you're right, it's always... Uh, kind of a shifting of the buck, passing of the buck to say, don't ask me, ask the FBI in a way that's problematic. Here it's, you know, especially disconcerting that they're pretending that there's this Chinese wall up and that, we, you know, that we had nothing to do with this. Is, this is of no concern. How dare you almost is the tone. Ask me about this kind of a question. This is beneath me. And I don't know. There's a real credibility concern here because a lot of Americans across the ideological spe- uh, spectrum are very concerned about the FBI, are concerned about the deep state and, you know, malpractice. You have uh, Tucker Carlson running a st- running with a story that he has a source that has confirmed proof that the CIA was involved in JFK's assassination. That's a whole other I missed that one, really? That's a whole, you know, you should watch the segment for yourselves and judge for yourself about the integrity of, you know, the basis for that claim and this unnamed source and all of that. But the point is the idea of that kind of thing happening is not out of left field for a lot of Americans because of our understanding of exactly how those kinds of organizations have historically operated, as I talked about in a radar I did a while back about this defund the FBI movement and all of that. So there's an integrity problem. There's a credibility problem when the White House refuses to acknowledge anything substantive coming out of these Twitter files. And they comment all the time on what the social media companies are doing. That's uh, one of the big problems here, or potentially, I think, legal problems, is that whenever uh, Twitter, Facebook, or Google make a moderation decision they don't like, they speak up about that. They, Joe Biden accused Facebook of killing people mm-hmm. by not taking down uh, COVID skepticism with, uh, with greater urgency. Um, a, a, uh, the previous uh, press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki, uh, inveighed against tech companies for not doing more to police misinformation. Um, a, a White House uh, comms person, Kate Bedingfield, went on Morning Joe and said and answered a question about from uh, Mika Brzezinski saying, who said, uh, you know, if, if they don't do more about misinformation, would you, you, you punish them with regulation? And she said, yeah, we're going to look at that. I mean, take that 
on one hand, and then look at what the FBI is doing behind closed doors to influence tech, and they're, they're, and they're threatening the companies, and I think that adds up to something. So, so anyway, they don't, they don't, their tongues are not tied when they're upset with what social media is doing. But now we have, we want answers on what the FBI was doing, how they feel about that. No, no comment. You got to go to the FBI for that. Yeah. By the way, there are um, a couple of big tech bills coming down the pike this week, which are ostensibly designed to protect some of these, um, you know, big tech companies against certain kind of overreaches. So, if you're concerned about uh, the um, uh, Apple Store being able to be a monopoly and basically decide whether or not you have access to various apps. We saw Parler get deplatformed. We saw, you know, PayPal has been pressured to not per- allow certain kind of transactions when the underlying mm-hmm. politics of the transaction is deemed to be inappropriate. If you're concerned about those kind of choke points at the app level, then you should be enthusiastic about some of the bills that have. Um, you know, uh, uh, bipartisan support, but are now being held up by Chuck Schumer, who, surprise, surprise, Google Open Secrets, <laughs> is a huge recipient of big tech money. And so around and around ago, we go, I think there's actually a lot of bipartisan concern about the ways in which, including, I, I just interviewed um, a leftist on my podcast uh, uh, on Monday, for Monday's episode, and they were very clear about this. Like, they are someone who identifies with a lot of the more left, even I would say maybe woke left cultural issues, but they don't want uh, the so violent rhetoric, so-called violent rhetoric, to be taken off of Twitter. They would prefer a world where, in the exchange between Representative Mace and um, the um, uh, Alejandra, uh, the, the, the woman that we talked about last week who ended up in that uh, congressional exchange, where her former tweets about uh, accosting mm-hmm. Supreme Court uh, members was criticized as a hypocritical, saying, saying that she wanted the violent speech not to be allowed on Twitter. My, my guess says, you know, I actually think Alejandra is right, but also that means that right-wing violent speech should be allowed, and that's a, a consistent way to go about it. So if you care about that actually being consistent, there are policies that are coming down the pike. There is bipartisan consensus around this sort of thing, but we're not seeing that kind of message coming out of the White House, and unfortunately, we're kind of not seeing that message coming out of Elon Musk either, who has disbanded any of his boards that were supposed to be getting to the root of how to design policy that was equal, and instead there's been this open embrace of this vengeance narrative where it's like, well, you guys are mean to us, now we're going to be mean to you, and round and round we go. Who's winning from this? Who's benefiting from this? No one. I don't think the problem will will only be solved if you actually, in my view, you have to actually um, prevent, you have to have some policy to prevent agencies like the FBI and the CDC from uh, communicating with social media companies in this way. It is mm-hmm. not a, they have, they each now have a division that does social media outreach that flags things in this manner. And that is not appropriate and should not be done in the same way that it's not appropriate for uh, public officials can't, you know, campaign and can't use their public offices to campaign the Hatch Act, et cetera. Something, it has to be yeah. something like that, that it's just not, they don't tell social media companies what to do. I, I would like it if politicians didn't do that either, but they kind of have the right because of um, uh, the congressional rules. They get to you know speak on whatever topic they want. That's not necessarily true for government employees. They could be they could be constrained from engaging with platforms in this way. That would be the change I would like to see. Yeah, I mean, I, my only hesitation as I'm thinking through that is. Would there be an exception for? I mean, I mean, how do you manage if there was a, a sincere terrorist threat? Like, I, I even don't want to say that out loud because mm-hmm. so often the idea of a sincere terrorist threat is weaponized 
to allow people to have the kind of overreaches we're describing here. Yes. But I, you know, so I don't know. We need to narrow you... their scope yeah. to, yes, they are allowed to message on actual uh, threats of terrorism and organized Eminence, violence. Incredible. But threats. what they're doing is expanding uh, the Department of Homeland Security ever expanding mandate to police to police opinions they don't like re relating to the Afghanistan pullout and COVID and all sorts of other things. Ukraine. Ukraine. Uh, we need to narrow the missions of these organizations, downsize many of these organizations. I mean, we could cut virtually everything Department of Homeland Security does without any loss to <laughs> Homeland Security. Whole TSA gone tomorrow <laughs> under the Robbie regime. That's the first thing to go. Whole thing yeah, shut yeah. down overnight would not impact safety and security one iota. Are libertarian candidates running on that? Yes. All right. Yes. Well, that's a pretty strong endorsement for paying more attention to what's going on outside of the aisles. <laughs> you, want, you want to carry on a moisturizer that is this big <laughs> rather than this bag? It, our reckless freedom would allow you to do that. I, heard I know it's just wild. Policy anyway. I, I thought I read Are they? that they're, they're, I don't they're think walking so. back the, the liquid requirement. I know it's, it's 3.4 ounces, because I know which size hairspray I'm allowed to bring in my suitcase. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I saw on... Um, no, aren't they planning to not let you bring your laptops on as well? They're always threatening to do that. Yeah, it's a story from three days ago. In we'll Condé just put Nast. them in our suitcases and um, get them stolen, The I guess. UK ended its travel size liquid rule for carry-ons. Will the U.S. do well, the same? Well, the U.K. does all sorts of smart things that we refuse to do. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could be more like our European uh, compatriots who truly know freedom, unlike uh, unlike us here Indeed. in the U.S. Indeed. Again, Robbie Slave coming out for Medicare for All at this late stage. Oh, just God. <laughs> Amazing. Right. We're rising for you right after this. Armed neo-Nazis and a leftist gun group went head-to-head -head outside an all-ages holiday drag show over the weekend, according to Dallas Morning News. This is just the most recent episode in a slew of confrontations stemming from anti-LGBTQ advocates. The group Protect Texas Kids has been protesting drag shows across the state for the past six months in an effort to stop children from being allowed at these performances. And though they maintain no connection to the neo-Nazi group, about 10 members of the neo-Nazi Aryan Freedom Network showed up anyway. Members of the group and counter-protesters were strapped with the guns, but no arrests were made because nobody drew their weapons. I, I guess I would be interested to know more about how, what the the the, the non-Nazi participants in the protest did to like were they aware that there were going to be the neo-Nazis were going to be there? Did they try to dissuade them from participating? Did they denounce them? Did they say we want nothing to do with you? Or, were they, or was it like a small group of people of which a substantial number were neo-Nazis? Do you know what I mean? Because it's not look if you have a giant protest, you're not necessarily I don't think responsible for every person who like every kooky person who wants to associate with your cause and is vile in every other way or something like that necessarily maligns you. The bigger a protest movement gets, the more that's bound to happen. That happens to the left as well that you know so i don't necessarily think like, like the, the tactic here to condemn the entire opposition to this as not as like de facto nazi seems not necessarily true to me but if you have 10 neo-nazis show up and it was only i don't know how many people were here like did you say please go away we want nothing to do with you you should probably do that this ended up being an issue at there was some turning points usa event right where mm -hmm. a bunch of nazis showed up in the the argument that came from, you know, liberals was, did you discourage? I mean, similar to what you're pointing out, you know, 
Did you discourage the Nazis? Why is it that it turns out at all your events, Nazis show up, Nazis aren't showing up at my events? I mean, do you think there's anything to that? At a certain point, if there is a political project that a group like white supremacists, Nazis have glommed onto, so consistency, at what point, if any, is there an obligation to do some introspection about what well, but I mean, this happens. They're kooky are. left, they're Nation of Islam or black Hebrew sure. Israelites groups showing but up to. I would argue they're not Nazis. Okay, they're pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, they shout. <laughs> Well, they uh, shout anti-Semitic things, anti-gay things, anti-women things. I'm sorry, things. but which, tell me specifically which left event, which left event are Nation of Islam people showing up in, in solidarity? The Women's March? Na na wait, who showed up at the Women's March? The Nation of Islam, didn't they? No, the argument, the argument that was being made that was one of the women who headed the um, Women's March had a good relationship with Louis Farrakhan. That wasn't a Louis Farrakhan event, it wasn't a Nation of Islam I mean, there were like event. a million people there. I can't imagine there was no problematic person in the crowd. Well, but, but that's not the that's not the question. The question is at this point, and you you said this, if there is an event where there is very few of the people who are ostensibly there to protest the actual event, and there seem to be a not incidental number of armed Nazis, at what point is there an obligation for the people who are holding this event to say, "Don't be here"? I, I'm asking you. I'm not saying anything. I'm right. I, well, that's what I'm saying is that <laughs> if I were spending my time organizing opposition to drag brunches. I mean, I would, I would question my life choices, but also I would make sure that, that the Nazis coming also to protest this cause did not feel welcome. That's how I would organize it, but, you know, I'm not an expert in this. Especially since the whole reason for everybody being here is ostensibly because they care so much about children. It's not clear to me that children are benefited by the presence of armed Nazis. I can't believe I sit here and I say sentences like that, like... They should have to be said out loud, but this is the country that we live in, where there are I mean, a lot of people. I mean, everyone has the right to be armed. Every, like who defends the not the right, but the wisdom as a society of having armed confrontations at an event that you are there to protest because you think that the safety of children is on the line. But it, I mean, nothing. It seems like there were protesters, there were counter protesters. People were armed, but nothing. Yeah. That happened, and that's it, nothing how bad it should happened, happen. You know, but we were also talking about this weeks after a shooting at a drag club, an all-ages drag event, in which five people were killed by someone who had this ideology of thinking, we got to keep people safe from the drag club, so I'm going to go shoot a bunch of people up. And, you know, it's not anybody else's fault of what that shooter did, and we can sit here all day and night and say that nobody has any responsibility for anything, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing with anybody. Mm. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. All I'm going to do is describe what happened. What happened is that there were armed Nazis outside of this all-ages drag club because they were there in the interest, ostensibly, of keeping kids safe. That is the world that we live in. Take well, it or leave what, it. What, what is your point? What do you... I don't know. If, that's, if that sounds good to, to you, be... that sounds good to you. If that sounds bad to you, that sounds bad to you. But I'm not going to be in this position. I'm a little frustrated being in this position. Of, if, you, if you say the obvious thing that Nazi armed Nazis are bad, you're, you're, you're like a lib or something. <laughs> like you're somehow so 
some kind of extremist that that wants to I don't know. It's like such a bizarre upside down universe we Ang live in. Angling for your CNN gig yet <laughs> oh again. Oh my god, Brianna, Brianna betrays her ideals and says armed Nazis are a bad thing. Well, well then you put me this is, I try to say that armed Nazis are not bad. They are, but it also but also nothing bad happened because Thank goodness. most people, even kooky people, don't do anything bad. Well, thank goodness. But look, this, there have been a number of these altercations all across the country. Uh, New York City Council member uh, Eric Botcher just posted a video this morning, uh, early this morning, of what he represents, and who knows the accuracy of this, but what he represents to be a video of the drag story hour protesters physically attacking one of his neighbors the night before. And again, it's a scuffle. Who knows who started it? I'm not, I'm not trying to make any strong claims about the origin story there. But it seems clear that these events have become focuses of violent confrontations across the country, some of which are deadly, that resulted in the murder of participants at Club Q, uh, murders that were only thwarted by a heroic attendee of said event, who was apparently a bad guy <laughs> for bringing his child to this event. And, you know, I just, I think people need to take a good long look in the mirror about whose interests are actually being protected as they show up to these kinds of events looking mm -hmm. for a fight. Yeah, and again, the controversy is over, I, I, I don't think the proper controversy is over just like children being exposed to men dressed up as women, but it's the, the concern that some many conservatives have is about children being exposed to sexual content and they don't they, the the stripping aspect of it some of these videos we've seen are it's sexual in nature and children are around now m again my solution to this is you parent your kids how you see fit if you don't think that's appropriate for your kids i think that's totally fine call to make i don't really see much reason for the state to be deciding this or or, or even or well everyone has the right to protest whatever they want um it, right, wouldn't, it wouldn't get me out on a Sunday, to, but... At what point does you have a right to protest whenever you want, but up against my right to go to a drag show without fearing for my life? Like They don't... What? The, someone murdered folks at Club Q, which infringes on their right to attend a drag show of their choice. So pretend You have the right like, not to be murdered. Right, and I think I also have a right not to be intimidated by someone standing outside of the door well, with, they can't a, stop you with from, a machine gun. They can't stop you from going in. Well, they can't stop you from going <laughs> in. They can't block the way. I mean, these are but these are very well adjudicated. Yeah, rules. that that is fine. But you can't. I'm sorry. What the law permits and what is kind of morally responsible, especially if you're looking out for the interests of kids, are not necessarily the same thing. Okay. What is yeah, from a morally responsible standpoint? Everybody mind your own business. Right. That's a perfectly good rule. Right. Like this, I don't, it's not. And also, if you're so concerned, I think I've said this before, if you're so concerned about children being exposed to sexual content, like you just, you have to deal with, and I'm not even saying I would necessarily agree with laws designed to combat this, because I think they have other issues, but you would have to grapple with like the easy and widespread access to online pornography, which is by far the way 99.9% .9 of underage people encounter sexual material. It's not because they got taken to a drag brunch that, I don't know, that has happened a small number that affects a small number of people compared to the millions and millions of children who, who at an early age encounter sexual material online. So if yeah. you're very worried about that, check out, you know, be res responsible with your children's access to smartphones and laptops and what they're allowed to consume when they go to friends' houses, things like that. 
Probably they're still going to find a way around it, but that's what you should be worried about. Not, not yeah, this. and I, I also just recommend that everybody Google kids at Hooters. Just Google kids at Hooters. And if you want to uh, put together a group of folks to go stand with uh, AK-47s or AR-15s, whatever it is, outside of Hooters restaurants to make sure that uh, parents don't subject their kids to that horrible sexually explicit environment, <laughs> then uh, that would be at least ideologically consistent. Well, we, we should, I, I have more to say. We, we should get into this. I, I think we'll be talking about this again. Yeah. So. Tomorrow on Rising, we have another amazing show planned for you. We will be covering the most important stories of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Mm. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>